I'm Margaret Mueller, President and CEO of the Executives Club of Chicago, Chicago region's top business forum. Join me on the Executives Exchange as we go deep with some of the most successful executives from the Chicago region and unlock the keys to their success. Trust me, you're going to want to hear this. Today's episode of the Executives Exchange features PBS President and CEO Paula Kerger. Paula is joined by guest host Bill Curtis, acclaimed television documentary producer and host. Paula talks about the vital role of public broadcasting and what it means to her to be the first woman leading PBS. Listen in to hear the challenges she's faced, the values PBS lives by, and the future of public media. This episode was recorded in front of a live audience. It's so nice to be here with you. It's and, great uh, to be here with you, Bill. Don't you love Bill's voice? Uh-huh. <laughs> Couldn't you just sit in this room and listen to him forever? Yeah. Which I do on it. Saturdays, by oh, the way. Oh, good. Yeah. good. Yeah. Wait, wait, don't tell me. Wait, wait. Um, you, you see the kind of uh, audio... Incidentally, I was going to say it's wonderful to be here in the house that Newt built. Yes, it is. Um, we're going to want to be... A, want to get, oh, I'm sorry. I should uh, explain to you. This will bring all your questions to me immediately. So I'm going to try and um, uh, work them into our mm-hmm. conversation. So fire away. Um, I want to know about you. Where did you start and get the idea for PBS and even before that? Yep. And I want to come back to my friend uh, Newt Minow in a little bit as well, uh, because he was uh, a great part of this journey. I grew up outside of Baltimore and uh, in an area that uh, now is more developed, but the time I grew up was was rural. And so for me, uh, public broadcasting, particularly public television, was important. Uh, It opened my mind and uh, encouraged me to think about things that I was not seeing uh, close to me. But I had another connection to public broadcasting, which is my grandfather, Uh, who had worked on missile defense systems during uh, World War II using microwave technology when he got out of the war, had this idea and petitioned the government for some surplus equipment. And at the um, school where he taught, he put up a public radio station using transmitter that he had had gotten out of the um, Department of the Army. And, um, and so he was responsible for WBJC, which is, uh, is now, uh, it's actually the classical music station in Baltimore. But he, he did it because he was a um, uh, professor um, and was teaching um, physics. And this was a real-world application for microwave technology, which was then the way that radio was transmitted. I'm telling you stuff that you know very well. (laughs) I'm talking to a radio guy and I'm explaining how radio works. (laughs) Anyway. um, Oh, but I love it. Now I finally understand. Now you understand. Um, So so I grew up with, um, you know, public radio being my grandfather's station. And, uh, but I never thought that this was where I would end up with my career. I was a classic underachiever. I went to college with this idea that I was going to be a doctor and then failed organic chemistry and so realized I would not be a doctor and took a lot of humanities courses because I loved them. I was interested in literature and art history and I took comparative religion and then panicked that I would never be gainfully employed, therefore never able to leave my parents' home. 
which I was motivated to do. And so I, um, I ended up getting a degree in business just because I thought, again, no great plan, but I thought at least I could get a job. And so with my uh, newly minted business degree, um, I really hadn't a clue. And I did what people did at that time, uh, which is I looked in the one ads and I started interviewing different places. And I happened to interview uh, for a job working for UNICEF. Now, it was, it was a bit of an epiphany for me. My family had been very involved in volunteer organizations my whole life. When I was really little, my, my grandmother took me door to door with the Heart Fund, which was mortifying, going to doors, asking people for money. Little did I know how well that would pay off for me later. <laughs> but um, I realized, and, you know, again, as a... 21, 22-year-old, it feels like a ridiculous moment to realize that there actually was a whole sector of people that worked at nonprofit organizations. And, um, and I got this job at UNICEF. And that actually was, and they were interested in me because I had a business degree and my interest was marketing. And nonprofits at the time, it was when more women were going back in the workforce and they were really looking for people to come in. And that's how I, I came into the nonprofit world. I worked for UNICEF. Started in Washington. Um, they brought me to New York. I ran the national trick-or-treat campaign, trick-or-treat for UNICEF. Those little boxes, they still exist. Um, maybe some came to your house recently. Um, and then from there, I worked at an uh, organization that was run by the Rockefeller family called International House. The whole idea was to bring people together that had come to this country studying with Americans. So that, um, And these are all graduate students, so the whole idea was... These are people that would go back to significant roles in their countries and their communities, as well as Americans that would go into significant roles and just a small way of trying to bring people together. From there, I got a job at the Metropolitan Opera. Tell me this isn't crazy. Um, and that what did, was... What did you say? Uh, yes. Well, that would send everyone running out <laughs> of this room. But I raised money for them. So oh. see, the, the money raising door-to-door was a good thing. And uh, one day working there, I got a call from a headhunter saying, would you be interested in coming to work in public broadcasting, Channel 13, WNET? And that's how I got into public broadcasting. And that was, I'm 17 years almost in this job, 13 years there. So that was 30 years ago. And it stuck. I loved, um, I first went to WNET to help them raise big money. And then I became the station manager, um, the then president thought that I had talent that I didn't see in myself. This is an uh, undercurrent in my career as well. Surrounding yourself with people that identify things in yourself you don't see. And uh, from there, I was tapped to, uh, to come to PBS, and I've been in this job for 17 years. Welcome aboard. Thank you. <laughs> that is wonderful. Mentors along the way. Mm. Now, your grandfather was one. but He was one. You must have run into some wonderful people. And, you know, it's interesting. When I talk to young people today um, who are trying to figure out their careers, one, I always tell them the organic chemistry story. I've had the privilege of giving um, some college commencements. My husband always says to me, please don't tell that story again. <laughs> but there's, there's, it, it, it's an important story because kids believe that if they make a mistake or something doesn't quite work out the way they think it should, that their life is over, that somehow everyone around them has their life figured out. And the reality is most of us don't. For most of us, it's a journey. 
Newt is accepted from this story, but most of the rest of us human beings really are trying to figure it out as we go. And I think the, the other thing that is important is you sometimes end up in places you never thought. And if it's the journey, not always the destination. And so being willing to try things and explore. And then the other part of that is finding extraordinary people that you learn from. So I've worked with some great people. I've worked with some not great people. I think you learn sometimes more from the not great bosses than the great ones. But I've had a couple people in my life who have been tremendously important in public media, two in particular. One was a man by the name of Ward Chamberlain. Ward Chamberlain was the person who was the president of WETA, not the first, but I think the second, Newt, is that right? He's either the second or the third. And he uh, was a, um, he, after he had retired, he was doing some work at Channel 13 and really took me under his wing. And I think I became the station manager uh, because he mentored me and helped me see that I could do more than just ask people for money, <laughs> as honorable a profession as that is. The other person that I have always looked up to is Newt Minow. So now I will tell my Newt story. I, uh, in 2006, I was named president of PBS, and I first-time CEO, and uh, I had been... I don't know, maybe two or three months in the job, and I got a phone call from Newton Minow's office. Mr. Minow would like to meet with you. Could you please come to Chicago? My heart stopped. Newton Minow was calling me. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so I, um, I went to, I came to Chicago. He had me meet him at the Drake, and I first, and I was really afraid um, because he is the great man that all of us in public broadcasting are always, um, we're trying to live up to his expectations of what this public media system should be. He was the one that, um, that really, and he described it well, there were a couple stations in a couple places, but the power of the system was something that he understood. This organization that is local and national and um, so I, I went up to the apartment. I met Joe. That's when I knew that things were going to be okay because I liked her a lot. <laughs> I thought this is going to be fine. And then it was time to go to dinner. And Joe said, well, you're going to be going next door for dinner. And then my heart sunk again. It's like, oh, I'm going to be alone with Newt. <laughs> and I just didn't want to mess up, which, in fact, was the message that he wanted to impart to me. When we sat down, he said, I wanted to meet with you because you know how important this job is. And I said, yes, I do. And he said, you cannot mess this up. (laughs) And for 17 years, I've been trying to honor that commitment that I made to you that night, that I'm going to do my best not to mess this up. (laughs) But I think that those that inspire us are those that, as Newt does, periodically sends notes about things that he thinks we've done well or occasionally things that we have messed up. We don't get it. We don't bat a thousand. But also um, people whose work um, is an inspiration. I think for many of us in public broadcasting, I'll speak for Sandra Misik, who I know you'll hear from a little later, we recognize that we stand on the shoulders of giants. We recognize that there were people that came before us that built these great organizations that had the vision and the idea, in our case, that media could be something more than just entertainment, but that when we really hit our mark is educational and inspirational, 
that has the possibility to help children see a world like I did when I was growing up that was not outside my backyard, but that had me think about ideas that I never dreamed were possible that bring joy to people that maybe don't get out as much anymore, that helps to what we're focused on right now in particular, help to knit this country together, help us to understand each other, our collective history. All of that was part of what was envisioned when this organization was created. And so I think for, for people like Newt, who have been such an extraordinary, not only role model, but have stayed engaged over the years and have prompted us to really think about what we should be doing to continue to evolve and be relevant for audiences to come is, is, is really um, has made all the difference for me. So yes, mentors are extraordinarily important. And never more important than today. I think never more important than today. I think, uh, just to set you up a little bit more, mm-hmm. I think that you are closer to the community than all the commercial stations. They're commercial. They're well, it's not money. just that. They're local. So yeah. I have spent 17 years visiting. I've not visited every single one of our stations, but almost all of them. I've been to every state in the country. Hawaii was the last, by the way, in 2019. How stupid was that? I waited until 2019 to go to Hawaii. I've been to Scranton three times. I've been to Hawaii once. <laughs> Which do anyway, you like best? <laughs> I like Scranton, actually. But, <laughs> but the, the point of it is that in a time when most media is not truly local, our, our public television stations are locally owned, they're locally operated, they're locally governed, and it's why we're trusted. Because you tend to trust your local friends, your neighbors, maybe not so much those people across the country that may not understand you as well. And I think that's particularly happened in media. When you, you, you see important stories where people will parachute into communities and they'll file a story, they may not fully understand it, but they'll get the facts as well as they can, and then they'll leave. In public broadcasting, our content comes to us from our stations, and we are in every community, and I think that matters a lot. And so every once in a while, I will call Newt, and because it is complicated running an organization like PBS, none of these stations report to me. I actually report to them. It's like a co-op flipped upside down. I mean, so um, what we try to do at PBS, we create the programming We create the infrastructure so that the programming is delivered to stations. We create the educational resources, which are significant. We we deliver content to more than 3 million teachers a month, free material that's delivered via broadband into classrooms. Um, All of the work that we can do at scale is what PBS does so that stations can focus on what they do which is um, that no one else can do, which is tell local stories and to bring the national content and make it relevant locally. It is a complicated organization to run. It's a federated system. So I have a lot of responsibility, not ultimate authority. And so more than once, and Newt will tell you, I have called him and said, can you remind me again what you were thinking when you set this up? (laughs) This organization that is is so... um, diffused in many ways, Mm -hmm. and particularly now when media is shifting so much and we're trying to figure out how to be on the new platforms and get stations to, you know, to come along and to make decisions that are hard, you know, to move from just a broadcaster, you control everything, to working with these other partners. It's, these are hard things to do. And then to do that across the entire country. But ultimately, 
he had it 100% right. Mm. This idea that we have local, powerful media organizations that all come, come together with a sense of common purpose is the most powerful system that we could have in this country, and it serves us extraordinarily well. So we're proud of you and the work you have done. Um, Newt said it. Uh, suddenly there is chaos among broadcasters. Nobody knows what's going on. You have streaming. They don't know whether to get into streaming. Then they'll shut down a whole channel. Um, uh, advertisers have, are leaving them. It was once uh, a business to print money, and now it is not. Uh, and yet, you, NPR, perhaps by, by design, but as much by accident, find yourself in the safe spot of a stable business who is loyal to what you do and have, have done all these years. And uh, people come to you for that. So let me... But it's not by accident. Because the reason that we're in the position that we are is that we never forget who we are. And I think where companies, so this isn't just relevant to public broadcasting, I think where companies get into trouble is they forget those values and that core that defines who you are. Hmm. And what we have tried to do over the years is we evolve and we change. We're a very different organization than we were when I first became the CEO and certainly 30 years ago when I first came into public media. But those, those attributes of public media that matter, creating content that isn't just entertainment, that, but that has, um, you know, that has, I, I used to refer to it as content of consequence, the content that actually makes a difference in people's lives. It would be tempting to, you know, do things just because they were popular to get an audience. But that's not why we were created. We were created to do those things that the marketplace could not fulfill. And we've tried not to forget that. That's where I think, um, you know, we have been able to, even in this very tumultuous time, continue to endure and to attract contributions and to attract people to the work that we're doing because we haven't forgotten that basic fact. Yeah. Let me put a problem to you, find out how you're going to solve it. The western portion of the United States is running out of water. Um, the New York Times has called it unlivable already. And at one time, you know, the deadline was, uh, well, by the end of the century. Then it's to 2030. You may have 150,000 homes wiped away by rising sea levels caused by the melting ice caps uh, in Antarctica and Greenland, you know, all the glaciers. Glaciers are gone, essentially, and they will be gone if they're not invisible right now. So here is a massive Armageddon kind of a problem. How are you going to sweep across the entire network and solve it? <laughs> I didn't think I would be answering the question, Paula, how are you solving climate change? But <laughs> I'll take a swing at a part of the question. It was a bit of a setup because we were in this conversation earlier. I think that I think very carefully about, uh, again, about coming back to my point of, of what makes us different than the rest of the media. I, I always use this line that we use the same tools as commercial media. We're just in a profoundly different business. Um, and I, as we look at uh, where we can put our time and effort, this is one of the, of the topics that I think we can do a lot 
to bring uh, conversations forward, to bring solutions forward uh, for people to, to think about and consider. You said a few minutes ago, we're trusted. We are. There are generations of people that grew up watching Sesame Street. There are generations of people that support their local stations. Um, we reach children. We reach classrooms. We reach adults, both during the day and in prime time. And we have an opportunity uh, to bring stories forward. And we have a long track, re- track record of producing content in this area. You know, series like Nature and Nova, we've we've done a lot of work in natural history. We've done a lot of work in science. We've done a lot of work already in climate. We have an extraordinary news-gathering organization in the NewsHour. We have the greatest investigative journalism series on television, Frontline. And if you take all of those assets and think about bringing stories forward about climate in a way that we are bringing everyone into the conversation, that's the contribution that PBS can make. And I think that um, thus far, um, I think there are those that would listen to what you just said and head directly to the bar because we have uh, trashed our world and there is nothing left to be done. I don't believe that. And I know that there are many that, that do not believe that. And so in addition to focusing on climate, what we're also focusing on is our solutions. And I think the more that we can bring solutions forward so that people can see in both small and larger ways that there is work that we can do individually and collectively as communities, that will make a big difference. So I don't know that I'm not suggesting for a moment that I'm going to, that we will solve the climate challenges ourselves, but I'd like to be part of the solution. Individuals will think of the solutions. Individuals will. will. And we'll get us out of this. Yeah. But, They have to all know the problem. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor, Sure. Audio equipment for the Executives Exchange podcast is provided by Sure Incorporated. When your team is depending on you for information and motivation, you can't afford to sound anything less than clear and confident. For nearly 100 years, performers and world leaders have depended on Sure microphones. Whether you're in front of a camera or behind a podium, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. Welcome back. Why is diversity important? Well, we are a media organization that is for all, and so we should reflect all. And I think if you look back at the history of public broadcasting, um, you look at everyone from, you know, Maria on Sesame Street to Charlene Hunter-Galt on the NewsHour. Um, there is a long history in public broadcast. I'm not the first woman to be the president of PBS. In fact, there, there are many women that have been both in front of and behind the cameras that have really changed uh, television from Julia Child to Paula Absol, who was the producer of NOVA, Rebecca Eaton, producer of uh, um, Masterpiece Theater, Rainey Aronson now is executive producer of Frontline. I can reel off uh, the names of, of many people who have um, had significant roles. And it matters who tells the story, and it matters who controls the stories that are told. And so it, is, uh, it has been a priority of public broadcasting, even more so over the last few years, um, after the murder of George Floyd, 
when many organizations were and, and, and individuals uh, were forced to look very carefully at themselves. And I think for PBS, even harder because we have this great history. So we're the good guys, right? And, but are we as good as we could be or should be? Probably not. And so um, for us, we have uh, really focused specifically on, um, you know, obviously our staff, but also the programs that we produce, the producers that we work with, the producers that we're supporting, um, not just new producers, but also producers who are working their second, third, fourth films that struggle to bring them forward. We focus on the relationships that we have with other vendors. We focus on governance. I mean, there are lots of pieces of this to think about, and it makes us a stronger, uh, richer organization by focusing on the country we are, not the country that we used to be. Yeah, well, you've done well. I'm going to go to Google. Just to prove to you that this uh, works. And if you'll notice, a good producer volunteered to bring it up here. Yeah, I saw that. that Yeah. Of all the transformational moments in your career, what is a moment or challenge that tested you and how you were changed as a result? I think uh, probably the biggest challenge, and I think anyone at any company could come up and answer the same question and would probably have a similar answer, and that would be the last few years um, I have, um, you know, we all have our collective experiences of how we've run organizations or run departments or whatever um, uh, leadership uh, role that we've had, uh, but nothing, you know, really prepared, certainly me, for these last few years, where in a period of literally days, we went from an organization that had always had largely people in the office to one that was almost fully remote. We didn't even have laptops for everyone. Um, And I think that the challenges of that period, and I think for for a leader in particular where, you know, your inclination I think always is to not just, um, you know, move an organization forward, but encourage um, all of the people that work with you, um, none of us had any answers and we were making up as we went. In the case of public broadcasting, I have, I I said to our stations as well as to our staff, I think we were built for this moment. Uh, The then head of the LA Unified School System, a guy by the name of Austin Butner, had reached out to me in early February and said, you know, we're watching, I'm watching this situation with this new uh, virus, and I'm worried that we may be in a position where we'll send kids home. He happened to run uh, uh, one of the two uh, uh, public television stations in Los Angeles, and he said, I think that that station could be part of solution for the kids that will be home. Can you help me? And we uh, pulled together a few stations in Los Angeles, which began, um, and building on what we were doing via broadband, began the basis of some at-home learning that stations across the country then took and ramped up and really became a a significant part of the work we did um, during COVID. We also were looking carefully at making sure that people were getting accurate information at a time when that seemed hard to get. Where do you go for trusted information? Again, PBS. Um, We also looked at bringing in programming that would be uh, diversion. There was no, um, if you remember the first months of of COVID. The baseball season did not start. We brought back Ken Burns' baseball series. It wasn't quite the same, but it felt like a step. 
um, we had all of this arts programming in the archives. We brought all of that back. And so I think that, um, uh, but that period taught me a lot. I couldn't tell the people that worked with me that it was going to be okay because I didn't know that. I didn't know what was going to happen. I worked with one of our largest funders who allowed us to repurpose some grants so that we could buy all the laptops and that we could put some resources aside because I didn't even know that our stations would all make it. This was before the you know, the federal government started issuing grants and some of our stations took advantage of that. Um, the need to communicate and to communicate and to communicate. You would think someone in media would be brilliant at communicating uh, within organizations, but we don't always remember that you have to say things overly and consistently for people to hear it and believe it. And then to create opportunities for people to talk about what they were going through, to figure out how we were going to manage people who weren't in an office but were um, dispersed. It was, uh, it, was a, it was a very, um, and we are going through this major media transformation. Oh, in the middle of it, we were celebrating our 50th anniversary. So um, what the good part of all of this is that I think it allowed all of us to be um, much more nimble we were able to do things we never thought we would do. No, I never thought Judy Woodruff would be doing the news hour from her house. You know, it just seemed crazy, right? Um, I mentioned our 50th anniversary. Uh, we had planned the stuff you do for 50th anniversaries, these retrospectives, all the stuff. We sort of scrapped all of it. It felt silly and indulgent and off, off at a moment when people were really struggling. But what we did do is uh, CBS Sunday Morning did a piece for us and um, they, we, we had, I was supposed to interview with them at the beginning of COVID. It didn't happen, so we did it remotely. This is CBS. So they sent me instructions, and they said they would interview me using my cell phone uh, for broadcast. And by that point, we were becoming accustomed to seeing things that looked a little different on air. And they sent me instructions on how to, how to set it up myself. You know, so prior to COVID, I would have gone into one of their studios and they would have had great makeup and lighting, none of which I had. Um, I did have a ring light, so that helped. And they sent me instructions on um, how to set up my camera, including how to use a Kleenex box as a tripod. Now, I would have thought CBS would have sent me a tripod, you know. (laughs) So here's important information for you to know. So use the boutique size, and if you <laughs> shove it in there, you know, sort of sideways, and you have to flip it around because it's not the selfie side that's the good camera, it's the other side. You probably know this already, right? And my hack to it is if you put a mirror behind, I used a hand mirror, if you use a mirror behind, then you can see what you look like because you can't see yourself if you're not using the selfie side. And it aired on national television, <laughs> and it looked great. <laughs> now, it sounds like a silly story, But the thing is, I think of all the things that we always held ourselves back, oh, we can't do that because we're PBS, we're quality and we're this and that. But sometimes, you know what? A camera, I mean, your cell phone stuffed in a a Kleenex box is actually pretty darn good. And if it allows you to to capture a moment that's important. Hmm. And so what we've been trying to do is we've been, you know, sort of returning back to whatever the state is now. The fact that we can all be in a room together is pretty great is that not to forget the stuff that, or at least that, that thought that you can do things that seem weird and out there, 
and the consequence may not be bad. In fact, it actually may turn out to be pretty good. And, and it has a, has a great edge to it. I prefer, you know, real mm-hmm. to lots of makeup and lights. Darwin said that, uh, you know, success doesn't go to the smartest or the strongest, but to the one who is quickest to adapt. That's it. And that's exactly what we have to do. And we just kept shifting every, every step of the way, yeah. you know, and we would learn how to do some things and we try other stuff. But, I, you know, I, I do feel that, again, as organizations, and I will get on my soapbox in a minute about this period we're in now, because I, I do believe, I, just, uh, I was just in New York. I, our offices are in Northern Virginia, so I'm in D.C. a lot. I was just in Cincinnati, Denver, and St. Louis. And many cities I'm visiting are really struggling because people are not in their offices. And there was a a poignant piece in the Washington Post from two days ago about Union Station, which was having challenges prior to COVID. And now because uh, government workers are not fully back, um, that, um, and this may be unpopular, but I'm, I'm going to say how I feel. I, I'm not expecting our staff at PBS to be in the office five days a week, but I want to see them at least half the time. And I think that the consequence of everyone retreating, we can talk about you know, people feeling isolated and all of that, but I think the other consequence is the impact that it's having on our cities and our communities. Mm. Restaurants, mm-hmm. small businesses, arts organizations that really rely on people being together and so this is an executive leaders group. So that's why you invited me. So I'm going to say my piece and you cannot invite me ever back again. <laughs> but I do believe that we all need to play a role in trying to get people back. And I think that it's... Other CEOs are speaking up and saying the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I don't feel completely alone here, but it's just, I just, mm-hmm. I see it because I've now visited so many, so many places where you, you can just see that, the, um, that there is a whole economy of, of businesses that will not survive and our country will be profoundly changed if we don't step up and do something about yeah. it. Let's talk about money. <clears throat> you get 15% of your funding. From the government. Our system does. Yes, our system does. does. So if you take the economy of all of our stations, again, this was another idea of yours, I think. If you take all of our stations together, um, 15% of of the economy of public broadcasting comes from the federal government. Most of that money goes to our stations. And it goes to, um, you know, support the infrastructure. And the whole idea behind it, which actually was brilliant, is that... um, you want to make sure, and this was part of what LBJ thought about in, uh, when he signed the Public Broadcasting Act and helped really create the network of PBS. There were stations, as, as Newt um, uh, suggested earlier, that had, had started up around the country, but there was no real network until, um, until the signing of the Public Broadcasting Act and, and the work of, of people like Newt and others that created the structure of PBS. Um, but the idea was that you wanted stations in communities that could afford them and ones that also would need a little support. And so the idea is that for those stations, we have an extraordinary station in Cookville, Tennessee. It has a small staff. Probably 60% of its revenue comes from the federal government. There would be no public broadcasting station in Cookville, Tennessee. In fact, there are no commercial stations in Cookville, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Nearest broadcasters in Nashville. 
And, um, and a lot of people in that community watch television over the air with antennas uh, outside. Um, and so the idea of having that money that stations use to support their infrastructure, I don't know what it is for TTW, it's probably, what, about 9%, 8%, 7%? Five, pick a number. It's small. It's smallish because this is a community that can support the station. And so that's the whole idea. We're, we're an interdependent system. And the rest of the money comes from, you know, different places, but the largest support is viewers like you. So here's the wind-up for the big pitch. Um, and that really, I think, is also part of where the trust comes from because I look at the other public broadcasters around the world. Most of them are state-funded. You know, the BBC is a extraordinary broadcaster, but the money comes to them from taxes on television sets. And so I think that the idea that people would, you know, dig down in their pockets and give money to their local public broadcasting stations, who do you give to? You give to organizations you trust. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the, the structure of this actually was brilliant because the idea that people would contribute into this thing in their community that has value Stations have to constantly work at proving their value in order to ensure that those monies come forward. We have always heard that, <clears throat> that Chicago uh, funds WTTW better than almost any other city in I the country. I think that's true. I and think that's carries true. with it a lot of clout. Um, I want to hear your pitch. It doesn't have oh, to be long <laughs> or go back uh, through the years. And, uh, you know, we'll use Sidley. As an example, there is so much advertising for law, lawyers, you know, on the air that uh, they need some advertising. Yeah. Um, why should they buy time, if they can, on WTTW or even a network? Well, they're not buying time. They're sponsoring work on public broadcasting, which is... Uh, something that signals their commitment to the community they serve and quality, which is what we represent. A lot of organizations support us because they care about the communities in which their employees work and live and their customers work and live. They care about being associated with an organization that is focused on content that matters, hmm. and that association has a profound halo effect. And by the way, we reach a significant number of people in this community. So this isn't just a, um, a uh, pure philanthropic effort, although, of course, there is a philanthropic component. 80% of the people in this community are watching station. And so it is seen by quite a few people who will note, because we don't have tons of ads on our air, that Sidley would then stand out as an organization that cares about Chicago that is an organization of quality, and their ad would sit there in a way that people will notice. And to be associated with quality is a very appealing thing. It is for Sidley, because that's what that law firm represents. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> and TTW can be associated with Sidley. How's yeah. that yeah. Uh, for quality? Um, what's your favorite PBS program? See, everyone thinks this is the softball question. <laughs> <laughs> so who's your favorite child? You know, I mean, it's the same version of, the, of that question. So, you know, our producers are extraordinary people, but they're sensitive, and I don't want to send any into <laughs> therapy. But, you know, I have come up with an answer to that question because I get asked it more times than you would think. Um, actually, you would acknowledge probably a lot of people ask me the question. And that is, 
what is the program that I think is the most important on our air? And I say frontline. Because there is no other investigative journalism series on television. And I think that the work that they do is profoundly important. I love the... I love Ken Burns. I love all of the history work that uh, we produce. I love Skip Gates. I love his series. I love Finding Your Roots. I love, you know, sometimes when I'm just exhausted, I like watching Antiques Roadshow. I like a lot on our air. I love the arts. It's always been important to me. Drama is important. All of it, I think, has a place. But I think the journalism that we do is 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 hugely important. Um, I'm I. I I put News Hour right behind Frontline, but I think there is, everyone has gotten out of the investigative journalism business more or less. Most of the series that you and I would think of as some of the great series focused on the important issues over time are now all crime, with the exception yeah. of 60 Minutes. And, Guilty. Right? <laughs> and I do feel that that is, um, is, is something more than almost anything else we do that I want to make sure is supported and grows. Frontline is number one in investigative reporting. Very quick, um, what will PBS look like in the next 17 years? Well, <laughs> right now I'm thinking about the next three, but um, <laughs> because media is shifting so much. Yeah. So I think, um, look, the ability to um, be able to watch whatever you want streamed. If you're a member of TTW, you can be a member of Passport. You have access to it. This isn't a pitch either, but I think Sandra's coming up next. She can make one because I've set her up nicely. Is, um, you know, is uh, access to a wide library, but also, you know, uh, free. We have available uh, a, a lot of content. So we're a broadcaster. I don't see the broadcast business really going away. I have arguments with people all the time. Broadcasting is dead. It's gone. It'll be gone in five years. A lot of people watch broadcasts. They watch linear television. They don't want to have to pick programs. I sometimes wonder if people that say this watch television. I'm talking about people in media. It's like, do you watch television? You come home every night and you know exactly what you're going to watch? Because I think most people have this experience. You come home, if you have a spouse or someone at home with you, you sit down and if you're trying to go through a, a library of programs, an hour later you're still scrolling through. Or, I wonder what's on PBS tonight. And you turn it on and it runs. And so I think, or other stations that may be your favorite. So I think there's something about having those decisions curated for you. It's not that we're lazy, but there's something magical about serendipity. And so I think that it's and, not or. I think it's wonderful that um, if you want to see a series that you missed or that someone is talking about, you can look it up. It makes, and the work that we do truly benefits from this environment we're in because these are evergreen programs that are as relevant when we produce them and sometimes 10 and 20 years later. Um, so having the opportunity to have that accessible really easy so all you have to do is find it and click and there you go is great. But it's also great to have things constantly brought forward. So I think there'll be some evolution of that. Um, but I also, um, what I can tell you for sure is that what I talked about um, probably 10 or 15 minutes ago about the values and the mission of what we do, that is sacrosanct and that will not change. And that I can speak for now, three years from now, five years from now, 17 years from now, because that's the foundation on which we're built. Good. Ladies and gentlemen, Paula Kerger. That's all for today's episode of the Executives Exchange, sponsored by Shure Incorporated. 
Thanks for listening. If you have Chicago speakers you think we should cover, please send us an email at media at executivesclub.org. The Executives Exchange is a production of the Executives Club of Chicago. Audio equipment for the Executives Club podcast is provided by Shure. Whether you're making a point or making history, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. It's written by me, Margaret Mueller, produced by Eva Pinar. Research and support from the staff of the Executives Club of Chicago. We appreciate you subscribing and reviewing the show from wherever you listen. Feel free to follow the club on Twitter at Exec Club and on LinkedIn. If you have more questions or are interested about becoming a member at the Executives Club of Chicago, check us out on the web at executivesclub.org.